terrific, terrific representation from all around the country. Uh, you have joined the uh, Citizens Institute for Rural Design, CIRD Community Center Project Design Conference call. So, you know, if you were planning to be on another call, <laughs> um, we, uh, but we welcome those of you that are here with this call hosted by the Orton Family Foundation and Community Matters. Um, and uh, Cynthia, do you have any reminders before I, I kind of re re review what we uh, need to talk about today? Okay. Well. Um, just basically the fact that you know the um, these are the there's one more call after this one on February 28th. These are all pre-application support calls um, to help you all put together. Effectively and efficiently to put together um, successful applications for the program. Um, at the in about an hour, at about four o'clock, we're going to go back into a Q and A. I see a lot of questions in front of me. I think some of them we've answered before. Um, try to go through as many of these as we can, and just try to hit the high points. The last call on the twenty eighth is just an hour of just office hours with just asking questions and us answering them um, to help you, you know, with this. I really stress to please review the entire website, read about the RFP, read the application, the eligibility, if you've got a town with a population of 50,000 or less or a city or a village with 50,000 or less, pretty much you're eligible, I would say. Um the urban fringe, non-metropolitan, metropolitan is not as big a factor as the sheer population number. So I hope that we are just trying to, you know, we're going to get better at this as we go along. But um, that's been a key issue, and we we just kind of want to help you guys move through that as quickly as possible. This is Fran again. Thank you so much, Cynthia. And, and by the way, of course, the, the final deadline again is March 5th. Uh, but we will have this uh, open call on the 28th if there are any uh, last kind of last-minute questions. I want to just um, again review a, a few uh, things before we begin the call. If uh, you call in to go onto mute, it is star six to get off mute again. It is pound six. So then you can join us speaking on the line when we get to the uh, the question and answer period. Um, if there's still too much background noise, it's sounding really good now, we might be forced to mute all callers uh, for the call, but hopefully we won't have to do this. Uh, if this is your first time on a call, you may be unfamiliar with the Google Docs, which are shared online documents for note-taking and for your questions. We have received um, a link, you should have received a link to the Google Doc with call information. And uh, we invite you to open your browser to follow along as we take notes, so you can follow that. Feel free to add your own notes. Um, you can skim to see what's there now, to see the questions that have already come in. Um, we, we have 49 people on the call. If there are more than 50, uh, since Google Docs only accept 50 active editors at a time, if you, you can look at it, but if you're not planning to edit or add a question or change a question, please close out and give someone else a chance to try, and then you can reopen in a minute or two in the read-only mode, and that will just help everybody uh, get in questions that they, they need. 
If um, on another point, if you're having trouble with Google Docs during the call, you can just hit refresh and try again. That often um, is the answer to that one. And if there are audio problems, just dial zero to reach the operator. We're probably working on it um, if there are some issues. A star zero, uh, actually star zero if you're having any audio problems. So again, just quickly, the agenda for today. This call provides an overview of the community-centered project design, will highlight different types of CIRD rural design projects and successful community outcomes. We'll highlight key principles of engaging the public in community design and help a project concept that meets CIRD selection criteria and um, that has a strong chance of on-the-ground success. So you should walk away with ideas to seed your own applications and tips on how to develop an effective um, community design process. We are very fortunate today um, to have two experts. And be before I get to that, I know a lot of the questions that are already popping up on the Google Doc are about the RFP. We are going to uh, spend, um, that'll be in the last half hour that we'll really address those RFP questions. What we're going to do now is have uh, Shelley Mastrom and Ariana McBride from Orton um, talk about certain aspects of this, and then there'll be questions and answers about that discussion, about those presentations, and then we'll go to the RFP questions. So that's how we've arranged it for now, and we'll see how it goes. If there are no questions about the presentation, we might jump to the RFP ones sooner than that. So we are very fortunate today to have Shelley Mastrom, who is uh, an original co-founder of CIRD and director for 20 years, and also Ariana McBride from Orton, who will offer brief presentations, will both offer brief presentations to introduce rural design and its benefits, as well as how to create projects that would be a good fit for your community. Um, this is just about 10 minutes apiece, and then we'll have plenty of time for questions. So thank you so much. Um, Shelly and Ariana, let's uh, begin with Shelly Mastrom. I'm on there, so I won't need Okay, it. well, thank you very much. All right, well, this is a bit of a challenge to describe to, uh, what good rural design is, but I, um, after 20 years with the, with the program, I'll give you the best of my experience. Essentially, good rural design can take many different forms, and it can appear on many different scales. It involves the planning and manipulation of the environment for the betterment of the community. It involves uh, improving the appearance and the ambiance of place. Um, NEA is very interested in, in creative placemaking, and a lot of good design affects that. Um, good design doesn't have to be the work of New York City or Los Angeles architects or landscape architects. It really, it, it, you know, to decide what is good for the community really comes down to what is appropriate for the culture of the place. Um, good design can, can be small-scale projects like painting murals on old building facades in the downtown, gateway signs into the community, creating a pocket park, a greenway, um, or creating a whole Main Street revitalization district. I mean, all of those things involve good design. So again, small scale to much larger. Good design has several steps. Um, really, it starts with brainstorming, coming up with ideas for what the community wants, um, developing plans, making the designs, and then the actual construction or installation of projects. And 
you know, I, I'm, I, I would think that design can cover all of those steps, so it doesn't have to result. Your your ideas about design don't necessarily have to result in in something that's built on the environment. It can be a plan or a design um, or ideas for those. What's important? Well, what, why is good design important? Well-designed communities are places where people want to live and invest in the future. And that's why good design is particularly important for rural communities, I believe, because many of our rural communities are threatened with out-migration, loss of economic base, or being sort of subsumed into the greater metropolitan area. So good design can really create, help create special places in, in rural communities. Um, good design fosters economic development. The benefits and the outcomes of good design include, as I just said, economic development, investment. Um, people want to stay in a place that's well designed. They put their money into places that are, are attractive and livable. Good design contributes to, can contribute to livability and walkability and good health. Good design can contribute to the cohesion of a community, the cultural togetherness, community expression, uh, sense of identity, pride in place. Some of these are not so tangible, but, um, but some of them you can easily measure economic development, but it can also realize livability a greater sense of place. Can everybody hear me all right? I can hear some... There's scratching, a lot of scratching. Yeah, I don't know what that is. I, I um, just want to say we're going to check in with the operator, but just make sure that you're on mute. That's going to, that's going to help with the audio, uh, which is star six. Thanks. Go ahead, go ahead Shelly. Sorry. Oh, okay. No, that's okay. Um, all right. So I've been asked to give you a couple of examples of successful uh, former workshop results or, or places that had successful workshops that resulted in good design outcomes. And um, a couple of these had very similar projects. For example, um, two, two communities that I was involved with, Taos, New Mexico, and Pendleton, South Carolina, both had work workshops that focused on the redesign of a downtown plaza or square. Um, a public square right in the middle of town that had become um, dysfunctional, unattractive, not used well. Either it had been compromised by uh, highway intrusions or uh, it had just worn, worn away over time and needed some spiffing up and revitalization. And so designing something like that, focusing on the design of a discrete place in the center of a community really has, can rally people together and um, as they brainstorm ideas for what they want that center of town, that heart of a community to look like, um, that, that really can not only create a very attractive place to gather, but also can bring people together to appreciate what they have. Um, I can think of a couple of workshops that focused on walkability, community walkability. Douglas, Michigan, a town that was basically cut in half by a five-lane highway. Um, Elkhorn City, Kentucky, which was a former coal mining town that had been cut off from its river.
because the river, of course, had been um, a, a place to to send logging, uh, you know, barges down downstream, and it, it was not a place that was appreciated for um, its aesthetics or its recreational value. So, in both of those communities, the, the workshops focused on designing walkways, trails, pathways um, to to make the community sort of hang together, cohere um, for the pedestrian, and to sort of get try to get rid of either the car or negative influences. Um, workshops can focus on heritage tourism, sort of building community identity for the visitor. I think of the Bitterroot Valley of Montana, um, a very large place with lots of different interests, ranching, Native Americans, and so forth. And um, the focus at the workshop in Bitterroot was to bring people together to, um, to create a trail that sort of ran the length of the valley that pe where people could access the artisans and the craft people who um, were making things in, in that region. Workshops can focus on downtown revitalization. I mean, good design um, oftentimes for a rural community means what does your downtown look like? Um, so buildings have been removed over time. Buildings have aged unattractively focusing on how to turn that around and, and invest in, in the community in, the, in its downtown. Uh, Wahewa, Hawaii, a small town on Oahu, um, next to an army base, had really just um, lost any sense of aesthetics in its downtown. And so it, the workshop there focused on how to bring back that, um, say, six-block area and, and make it attractive and vital again sort of economic development and aesthetics combined. Curbing McMansions or um, curbing the worst of sort of sprawl, like franchise design, um, trying, to, trying to introduce design guidelines for both residential or commercial development can, can be, uh, so just coming up with the designs for that um, can be the focus of a workshop. What compatible new development looks like, very similar, similar idea. Middleburg, Virginia had um, issues with a, a large property on the edge of town that was going to be developed, and it could be developed with 300 houses. So what would those houses look like? Where would they go? How would they be located? Um, you know, that sort of design problem on a large scale could be a focus. Um, some workshops focus on art, literally art, um, murals, uh, signage, art space, galleries, um, the, cre the, the dance arts, the musical arts, how to use the arts um, as to, to both foster community identity and to um, bring in visitors. So those are just some examples. I, as I say, it's, it's really hard to, to say exactly what quote-unquote good design is. I think Ariana is going to touch on that in terms of criteria, but um, I will stay on the line and would be happy to answer questions later on if that's appropriate. Thank you so much, Shelley. That's terrific. Um, we're uh, in good time. Ariana. Thanks, Fran, and, and thanks, Shelley, for that, that great overview of the kinds of projects um, communities may be wanting to consider in their own towns. Um, so I'm going to go in, in maybe a slightly different direction than um, good design, generally speaking. My job here today is to really, um, hang on one second, I'm just going to adjust my sound here. 
My job here today is to share with you what we've learned at Orton about how to successfully design a community engagement process, particularly those focused on planning and design. Um, my comments are based on what we've learned through our Heart and Soul Community Planning Program, but I feel that they're really useful for any kind of community design project. And what we've learned is that when it comes to designing a community-centered effort, there are three primary principles to consider. The first is to design with the end in mind. The second is to design for diverse community participation. And the third is to design for your community. With, if you could see me, I'm really emphasizing the word your. I'd be kind of raising my hands and, and, and flashing some kind of sign. Um, and we'll talk a lot about what I mean in, in a couple minutes on that point. Um, so I'm going to focus on, on how you can apply these three principles uh, you know, as you're thinking about developing your project concept. So I don't know if any of you have read the story Alice in Wonderland lately or, or maybe in your past as a, as a kid or maybe through your own children um, more recently, but you may remember uh, an often quoted line, if you don't know where you're going, any roads will get you there. So this quote is actually a summation of a dialogue between Alice and uh, the Cheshire Cat. And the basic gist of their conversation is that Alice will get somewhere if she walks long enough, but where is not exactly clear. And unfortunately, I've seen this kind of story play out in, in different community projects, which is why that first principle I mentioned is really so important, which is design with the end in mind. Um, we found that clarity on the front end of your project will really help ensure that you're going to head in the right direction. And there are three early steps you can take to make sure this happens in your project. The first is to set really clear project goals. And that sounds really obvious, I'm sure, but it's actually pretty hard to do sometimes. Um, so on the Google Doc, we've created a, kind of a tip sheet called Setting Project Goals, and it provides some of the guidance on goal setting, and it includes some group exercises and, and some worksheets you can do as well. The um, second piece is uh, how you can define your scope really clear. And again, that sounds really obvious as well. But it's amazing how easy it is to have uh, what we call project scope creep. So you may have heard of mission creep. The same thing can happen with individual projects. Um, so we've created a, a document up there called the Local Project Inventory, which is just a way for you to start thinking about what other projects, either kind of recent ones or current ones, um, might affect the project that you're, you're considering putting together. And the third step you can take is to ask what success would look like. Again, a really simple question, but one that people don't typically ask at the start of a project. Um, and so on the Google Doc, there's actually a tutorial that the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation put together that can help a group think through how it can both define and measure its success. Um, that tutorial was originally designed for organizations to use, but we found it to be pretty adaptable in the community context as well. So. Um, once you have your goals and your scope and, and your definition of success, you, that, those are the kinds of things that can be summarized into a project concept. And that concept is going to be useful, obviously, for, for this kind of program, but um, it's also helpful for recruiting project leaders, volunteers, or funders. Um, and you'll also be able to use it as you plan for specific project activities. Now, you know, ultimately, you want your project to lead to action on the ground. And I think Shelley gave you a, a great list of possible project types. Um, and so while you won't know maybe the specific form that those actions will take, since that's really what your project is about, it's important to be pretty clear about the direction you're heading. So if your project is about, um, you know, improving walkability, then that really needs to be central in your project goals. So the second principle uh, I mentioned is designing for diverse community participation. We've seen that the best community design projects are often a combination of local wisdom of the community and expert knowledge in the design disciplines. 
Um, so while folks often get that what the designers are bringing to the table, some may question the need for that diverse community participation. Um, and so in our experience, we've seen really three primary reasons why that participation matters. The first is that local people know their community best. So their insights are going to inform your project in many ways, from identifying community values, to brainstorming possible actions that Shelley mentioned, um, to prioritizing those different actions. So I'm getting a little feedback there, but um, it's also vital that you'll hear from a diversity of residents so that you know that you're getting really that full picture of your community in terms of what people care about, um, what they see as issues, and what they see as uh, the actions moving forward. Um, second reason, <clears throat> excuse me, is that many minds lead to better results. So we found that research consistently shows that having a diversity of perspectives contributing to solving a problem results in more creative and effective solutions, particularly for some of those complex issues. So Shelley mentioned, you know, a couple of different projects were around downtown revitalization. I would definitely categorize that as a more complex problem. Um, the third reason is that ownership matters. So the actions that are going to result from your project are going to require more than the participation of local government. It's the community, the residents, the business owners, uh, community groups, all of those folks need to own those outcomes too and be just as responsible for their implementation. Um, Carolyn Lukensmeyer, uh, who spoke on a recent CM call actually about participation last December, shared a key question that you can ask if you design your project. That question is, who needs to be in the room and in what proportion for the process to be credible? And that this credibility really must speak to local decision makers, the press and the public. Um, and so that probably all sounds great, and, and maybe you've, you've bought on to the diverse community participation, but you're, you're really wondering why or how you're going to get that in your community and your project. And there's three common ways uh, that we do this. The first is through understanding your community's demographics, um, and census data is a great place to start. The second is through knowing who your stakeholders are. So that's who's affected by the project, who's going to affect it, and who's responsible for the implementation of the outcome. And the third is to understand your community network. So the way we define networks is, is that they're the ways that people are organized in your community, either formally or informally. So that might be the local rotary or folks who hang out at a particular coffee shop, or maybe it's just people who get together to mountain bike or hike together. Um, and Orton uses these community networks as the primary organizing structure for community engagement. So it's really through these networks that news and information is most effectively shared. Um, You'll see on the Google Doc, uh, we posted a tool called the Community Network Analysis. Um, and this is the kind of tool that helps you um, both identify those demographic stakeholders and networks in, in your particular city or town. Um, and you'll see a reference to a number of kind of um, outside resources like American Fact Finder or Data Place. Um, and again, it's a tool that's really helpful at the beginning of your project, but it's also helpful later as you're planning project activities. Um, for instance, we're working in a town, uh, Essex, Vermont, right now. And they use it to develop a plan for holding a series of neighborhood meetings um, around their community topic. And now they're revisiting that network analysis to assess whether they actually were effective in getting that diversity they wanted to see. Um, so it's the kind of thing that you can use if you're in a community project. Um, so there's actually going to be a, an outreach and communications call as part of this series. I believe it's going to happen in, in June or July. And so I think that will be another opportunity as, you know, towns who are selected are really digging into their projects, they can go a little bit deeper into these kinds of tools. The, um, the third principle is uh, what I call design for your community. Uh, longtime CIRD faculty member and Urban Land Institute fellow Ed McMahon often poses the following question. Do you want new development to shape the character of your community, or do you want the character of your community to shape new development? 
And when he puts it this way, the answer is clear. Uh, community character should really shape new development. Uh, that character should also inform community design, and design in turn should support and enhance it. Um, so when you're developing a community design project, it's important to first take a look at how your community's vision and values are currently articulated. Um, so for instance, does your town have a comprehensive plan that spells these things out, or have you already had a visioning workshop? Uh, if you don't yet have those clear community values and vision, then your project is going to have to incorporate that kind of step first. Um, and there will actually be a call uh, around values-based community design, again, in this series. Uh, it will be in that June or July frame. And so that, that call will offer you some ideas on how to take that step if you haven't already done that as a community. So the second part of this particular principle is really speaks more to the resources of your particular town. So that's what people or organizations can you tap into to make your design project a success. Um, and again, who will have to act on those outcomes of your project? The answers to these kinds of questions can really help inform who you develop partnerships with as, as you start to develop this particular project. Um, you'll see on the Google Docs there's a resource on, on how to develop strong partnerships that gives some, some overall guidance on how to both develop and maintain them. Um, and I know, I, I believe in the um, RFP there's a, a call for you to create a project team, which is we find a really great way to ensure you design a project that fits with your community. Um, this team is really going to serve as stewards for your project, so it's going to ensure that you design activities that are fit for your residents. It's going to help spread the word. It's going to help make sure the project stays on track. Um, and again, on the Google Docs, you're going to find um, some tips in terms of how to form and maintain that kind of project team. Uh, so I think with that, I will I'll stop now. I'm sure there's some questions, um, and I guess I'll uh, turn it back over to Fran. Thank you, Ariana, and uh, so thanks to you both for really clarifying a lot of things. I, um, I'm going to actually first open it. Well, first, a reminder: there, there are a number again of questions about the RFP eligibility, and we're going to take those at about four. We're going to save that for the last half hour, unless there's so few questions about um, these other things. But there are a few really good questions, and Len had uh, a good question. That first, um, the first half of your question, Len, about kind of the good and bad design. Do you want to, um, if you push pound six and ask your question for Ariana and Shelley? Len, are you there? And if he doesn't come on, I'll ask the question, but. Okay. Um, well, I was on mute, yeah. Uh, I, first, first thing that I would say is uh, that uh, the two discussions uh, were uh, made it very clear uh, response to my question. The question was the, what criteria uh, w would be used in distinguishing good or superior from poor or inferior rural design. I have a much better idea of what that is all about and also uh, how it relates to um, getting the uh, community in back of this and the character of the community uh, shaping the design or development rather than vice versa. So as far as I'm concerned, the, the question that I raised there has, has been answered quite well. Okay. Great, Len. I, I don't know if, um, Shelley, there, there is more you want to say about just really good superior design versus bad design. Oh boy. Well, it's it's sort of a quagmire. I'd, I'd rather not get into, but um, <laughs> um, I I guess I'd like to pick up with what one thing that you said, Ariana, which is that the notion of um, 
what's what's good design is really I think bottom line is dictated by by the community. In other words, each community is unique. Each community has its own culture, its own um, worldview in a way, uh, a way of doing things, lifestyle. And it seems to me that if if people in the community work together on a design project, they will come up with something that's appropriate for them. You know, somebody, some highfalutin architect from New York may not think that a rural community's design is quote-unquote top drawer, but if it fits the community, then I think it's good design. And let me just offer an example. I, I mentioned Elkhorn City, Kentucky. Um, tiny town, 350 people. Um, not a lot of resources. Um, they they gathered community um, school groups to create mo- the school children to create mosaics along a walkway near their river, and the kids did the designs themselves. They they decided what, how what they wanted the tiles to go, what they wanted them to look like, what colors they should be, and they installed the community installed what the children had designed. Now, is that it's not high style, but it's perfect for Elkhorn City. Everyone loves it. And there was a real sense of buy-in there because the kids did it. So mm-hmm. I'm going to sidestep the issue with that example. Shelley, you also mentioned collaboration. And one another question that came in was for you to describe some examples of collaboration in past CIRD projects and, and talk about what made them work. Oh, boy. Um, okay. Well, I think it's really important to bring as many, I mean, this is, you know, old planning uh, common knowledge, but th- the idea is to bring all the stakeholders to the table at the very beginning. And if there are disparate groups, but they all share the same community and the same space, then to the extent that it's humanly possible, they should all come together as you're planning the workshop, as you're even writing the you know writing your proposal, and um, and chip in, if if it's at all possible to do that. Um, let me mention Taos, New Mexico, which you might already think of as having good design, quote unquote, but in fact it had a plaza that was totally underused, and um, in fact you know it had become sort of a drug haven. In order to redesign that plaza, it was really important to bring all of the people of Taos and the surrounding Taos community together. And that means Hispanics, Native Americans, local Anglos, and second home Anglos, you know, people who were there just on weekends or in the summer or for ski season or something. All those people together share the plaza, and they all needed to be there at the table. And the people who'd organized the workshop were amazingly successful in getting everyone involved. So they had old and young, all of the mixes of, of um, ethnicity together at the workshop and before the workshop. So, you know, that's that's an example. Thank you, Shelley. And Ariana, do you have anything to add to that or even, you know, how people should think about getting the conversation uh, started now around collaboration? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with what Shelley said in terms of, of bringing those stakeholders to the table as early in the process as possible. Uh, I think in terms of uh, maybe more formal collaborations or partnerships in the project, you know, I, I think there's a couple qualities you really want to look for. Um, 
one, I think you really have to spell out that common purpose. If, if people are coming to the table around the project, um, I think there's got to be some clear roles so partners um, or collaborators understand, you know, what they're, you know, how they're participating and what they're contributing. Um, uh, you know, it can be helpful to have a little bit of a, a defined structure so people understand, you know, how the project's moving forward, how they're communicating, um, how action will ultimately be taken, that's those kinds of things. Um, you know, often if there's already a history, kind of a collaborative culture in a community, that, that makes these kinds of projects much easier. If that culture is not there, then we find um, communities have to spend some more time building those relationships at the front end of a project. Um, and also just thinking about if, if there are resources you're asking people to commit, whether that's staff time or, or meeting space or, or whatever it happens to be. So just to kind of think through a little bit how you want that collaboration or partnership to, to look. Thank you, Ariana. Um, we, we have another uh, question from Missouri, uh, who says, I'm interested in what types of proposals have been successful before, why they were chosen, and how they benefited the community according to the community. So maybe, Shelley, you can get into a little bit more detail. Okay. Well, I think, well, again, I can talk about some of the su successful proposals in the past, I, you know, I, the past doesn't necessarily predict the future. But anyway, um, I would say that proposals that were most successful were those that um, did indicate a strong collaboration, a strong group of stakeholders involved, meaning people signing on from all aspects of, of the area. The, the sort of um, the timing also seemed to be important. Um, in other words, a project that where the time was just ripe for it for some for whatever reason, um, perhaps it was an area that was threatened by the DOT or um, or some external force, and if you don't act now, you know you might lose something. Or um, everything has been brought together. We've done all this planning. We've done we've taken step one, two, three, four, and now we are so ready to take step five. And this, can, and this workshop will help us take step five, and then we can really do something. So sort of the, the, the criticality of the timing, um, the sense of involvement, um, I think those, those two things are probably the most important. Well, I, a, third, a third thing, I think the reflection of a strong leadership in the proposal um, Ultimately, no matter how many people you have involved, there has to be somebody at the local level who's going to be in charge of getting everyone together and, and pulling it off. So you have to be able to demonstrate strong commitment from a strong leader. Okay. Thank you very much, Shelley. Um, Anne uh, wrote in from Georgia, and I, Anne, I wondered if uh, you'd get on the line by uh, hitting pound six. Uh, you have a, a project that um, focuses on historic preservation and sustainable farming. Is Anne there from Georgia? Well, if she comes on, I'll, I'll read her question, and she might elaborate on this. Um, Anne says, we're considering a project that focuses on historic preservation and sustainable farming as the means of economic development for a poor, small rural community. 
We have been working with Sparta, Georgia, and Hancock County for several years, investing in the community via our revolving fund and Places in Peril program. I'd be interested in learning if this project would be of interest to CIRD and would welcome ideas on how best to structure a workshop to further develop this project. Any, so Ariana, do you have some thoughts on that? Sure, let me, uh, so the, the project was sort of a combination of historic preservation and sustainable farming. Um, yeah. Yep. Okay. So, well, I mean, I think going back to what I was saying earlier about project goals, uh, it sounds like uh, this particular community is already doing some work and, and probably has some lessons and, and probably has some specific challenges that they're trying to address. Um, and so I would probably suggest taking a look at those, those kind of outstanding issues or challenges and, and considering, you know, how would they apply um, a design project to those, you know, so I don't know necessarily whether, you know, maybe if there's a historic preservation angle, um, if, if it's placed at the downtown, if there's some kind of focus there, or maybe there's creation of a, um, like a farmer's market downtown that capitalizes mm -hmm. on one of the historic buildings. Um, so thinking about a little bit about how you either, again, if there's a, kind of an outstanding issue or question that they've developed through the work they've done, uh, thinking about some creative ways that they can combine um, these two assets of, of kind of their historic uh, Structures and um, it sounds like the farming is a pretty important part of their economic development strategy. Um, so I, I think just doing some thinking around what what are the kind of goals or questions that they would have for this kind of project, and um, I'm sure there's some many many possibilities. Thanks, Ariana. Shelley, do you have anything to add? Not really. I, I would just echo what Ariana said. I think just how to how those two things marry, how, how historic preservation and sustainable farming work together and I don't I don't you know again without having the woman on the line who could explain that to us it's hard hard to know exactly but um that would be key is making that connection right and you haven't joined us have you okay um I'm going to I'm going to go on uh, Marissa um, from Montana wrote in and she's interested she has a couple of revitalization projects not just one uh, they're in need of, of a few projects, and she needs some help on how to make the choice between one one project and another. Uh, so, Shelley, have you, you maybe you've had that where, where communities have a have a couple of projects? Are there ones that are would be more successful than others in your mind? Well, again, I, I guess it comes down to um, scale, for one thing, um, is one easier than, than another to, to accomplish. I would say scale, um, importance to the community at large, you know, what, what is the anticipated benefit from each one of them, which one outweighs the other. Um, and again, what we've already said, you know, what, who are the stakeholders involved in each of the projects and which one seems to have the strongest base of support. Maybe there's a way to do both if they're related to each other. Well, that's a good tip. <laughs> I don't know. Ariana, do you have any any additional thoughts there? Uh, yeah, maybe going to the most practical level. Again, not knowing the list of projects, but if it's something that's really physically based, if there's site control, that can be really helpful in terms of implementation. Um, 
I think if there's potential for, for follow-on funding, that can be helpful. So sometimes, you know, community may have a brownfield issue or you know, maybe historic preservation funds. Um, but I, I think Charlie's point about, you know, what's the importance of the community? What's, what's going to be the most relevant to them and get them most excited about, uh, about participating, I think, is a really important one. Okay, thank you, Ariana. Um, so I'm gonna, I'd like to open it up. Uh, we've kind of covered the questions that were on the Google Docs, but if anybody else has other questions about good project design, uh, this is not about the RFP. We want to hold those uh, for just a little bit still. But are there any, um, you can uh, go to pound six and come back on board to ask any, any questions about good project design? Or any questions of, of anything else to the presenters today? Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Tell us where you're from. My name is Major Robinson, and I'm from Billings, Montana. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, I had a question <clears throat> regarding the uh, planning approach. Um, this has been helpful this morning, as the gentleman before had mentioned, about kind of uh, honing down the application to what would be successful. Um, a question I had is, it sounds like a lot of the projects mentioned are, are pretty tangible, and they produce something that is uh, physically present in the community. I was wondering if uh, a a uh, application that had a more regional planning approach would be considered, meaning that it might span a couple counties, and uh, but it would be different communities, rural communities within those counties, and and have uh, everybody come together for a planning effort like that to really define what it is that that's important for those communities, or are you saying that? that work needs to be done already and the project identified. Okay, this, this might be a question even for Cynthia, so she can jump on if um, if mm -hmm. you want to, if you have some thoughts about this question. Yeah, I mean, it's, in some ways it's really exciting that there are uh, multiple jurisdictions or communities or regions that want to apply together because oftentimes communities do not play well with one another and they compete. So this, this kind of partnership and multiple support is great. It also helps with the goal of the program, which is to, to replicate, to make um, have these each of these pilot projects have lessons that can be learned and embraced by other communities, things that are relevant to a broad spectrum. Uh, the only, I think the key caveat is that none of the communities that are applying can have a population over 50,000. But combined, yes. I mean, if there's three and they have a population of, you know, over 50, it's okay. But not one of them can be uh, that large. So that's that's the only caveat that we have um, on our end about that. Okay. And that applies here. I think between both counties, the population between both counties wouldn't add up to more than 50,000 itself. Yeah, so you should be fine. That should be fine. We're really, you know, the eligibility is, um, it's a guideline, it's its a goal. Um, we are, you know, as we reinvent the program, we really kind of want to see what's, what's out there, what is it that people are proposing, and we may actually possibly revise that 
requirement in the future. So we're really trying to be very open um, and flexible. Um, you know, the, as I said in the call last month, the goal is to make services available from the design community to rural areas and communities that do not have access to those services otherwise. So it's really providing, you know, like in Barry County, North Carolina, there's not one registered architect, or there wasn't until colleagues of ours moved there. You know, that's that's kind of the the challenge that we're trying to to overcome. That's the spirit behind all of this. Thank you, Cynthia. Um, again, we're we're looking at other thoughts or comments about good project design. Uh, we have some remarkable people on the line who might also have some ideas or comments or examples that they want to share about a good project design that they've done in the past. So if you feel you have something to share here, that would be terrific. Any other questions about good project design? I have a question. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Yes, please give us your name and where you're from. Uh, Roger B. from New York. Thanks, Roger. Um, I, I had a question on the deliverables. Uh, at the end of the workshop, and I'm trying to get a handle on what is it that is to, in fact, be delivered, and does the $35,000 help uh, to create that? Um, is it a plan? Is it a report? Um, just what is it at the end of the workshop will, is to be created here? Um, I can, this is Cynthia Nikitin, I can speak to that. You know, what's exciting is that it's going to be different in every community. And that's what I personally cannot wait to see what happens. Um, we, there will be a report that, um, the, that the workshop communities put together that we help them with. There'll be an evaluation piece to see how effective the workshop was um, from the participants' point of view, so there will be a little a survey or some evaluation process that happens during the workshop. There will be a report of findings. Um, reports from some prior workshops are actually um, available through the CIRD, for the um, Rural Design um, website. If you go to workshops, it will link you back to some reports from prior workshops. We would um, hope that there is a, is a visual component as well uh, from the outcome. It could be a sketch. It could be a concept plan. It could be a bubble diagram. It could be a cartoon drawing. It could be a graphic interpretation. Um, as this is a design program and as design services are very are, might come in at a crucial point in a community's project planning, um, we would like there to be some sort of visual output. And the resources that the CERD staff bring to the table with the resources of the four members of the resource team will help you get to that product. And as part of the planning process, we help you identify who are going to be four of the best people we can find in the U.S. to come to your town to spend two days with you to help you work through that particular challenge. And we will have ideas the NEA has ideas, you have ideas, you have resources, you have creative people in your community at a nearby university. We will come up with who are the best possible people to provide that resource to you. So that's part of the collaborative planning process that happens once you're selected. Okay, do you see most of do you see most of that effort coming from the 
let's say, the applicant or the sponsor, or is, uh, is some of that coming out of the $35,000? I'm trying to establish a budget here for who works on what. You mean internally within, the, within our program? I'm not understanding. Uh, within your our part. Within your part. Um, the 35000 is our calculation of what the in-kind services are that the CIRD program is offering to each community. So that's our time helping you coordinate, helping you with um, the website development was a big part. These calls are part of that technical assistance. They're all wrapped up in that, in that dollar figure. But the resources that we provide are the people coming to the workshop, the workshop notebook, facilitating the two days. Um, it's it's pretty much it's a collaboration actually with us and the communities between CERD and the towns. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Thank Follow you, up, Thank Roger and Cynthia. Um, it's clear that people are kind of anxious to get on to uh, some. I have other one more question. Questions? Oh yes, Roger. Did you have another question? I do. Um, this is Matt. Um, oh, I'm calling from Wisconsin. Um, and I'm coming to this, so I apologize. This may have been discussed. And it does come from some of the questions that came just prior about what sort of projects are funded. Um, so I'm in a small rural community that is uh, – actually, this is like a micro um, site in a kind of way. We're looking at developing a guild along uh, – a county road that we all live on, and basically all of us bring a particular skill or product um, to the table that collectively we could market to um, in a CSA sort of format or something else. Um, we're trying to understand if that's a viable kind of market uh, model at all, um, and we would also be looking at how we might brand that and um, you know present that concept in order to you know initiate you know, selling products, et cetera. Now, it's not exactly a visual design solution or a, um, you know, a site-specific design solution, but I'm wondering if that's the kind. And the other thing is this could be emulated, you know, in other places, I imagine. Um, so, again, I don't know if this is the kind of thing that you would be looking at a potential funding for or not. Let's see, Matt. What um, Shelley? Have you seen any projects like this before? Pardon me. Um, I'm, I'm asking if Shelley has seen anything like this before, and/or um, Ariana might have some thoughts about your question, Matt. Okay. Our, our two presenters. I haven't specifically seen anything quite like that. Um, but but that's not to say I, there certainly have been workshops that have dealt with sort of developing a concept or developing a plan or developing a strategy, and that's the product of the workshop. So, okay. um, again, I don't, you know, Cynthia, maybe you could answer that better than I. Um, Anna, did you have any thoughts about this kind of idea? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I think to Shelley's point, if, you know, in the past there have been projects that have, can support that development of a project concept. Um, I think Cynthia mentioned before, you know, the, there's been a pretty broad brush in terms of the types of projects that have come in, and, and you know, who knows what will come in this year, and, and I think, you know, probably the team will have to take a look at, at those different possibilities. 
Um, but, you know, I could imagine uh, whether it's this, through this program or another, you know, a, a kind of workshop, you know, that could explore uh, that kind of issue in terms of thinking about what, if that's a viable model, what are some, some similar models that, that could be drawn on um, for inspiration um, and then some, you know, action planning around how to make it happen and, and how to brand it and that kind of thing. So uh, in, in terms of the general concept, I think it's pretty exciting. I think it just is a matter of, of, of how the overall application and, and process plays out. Right, right. Okay. Okay. Thank so you. And yeah, thank you, Matt, for the question. Uh, I, I just want to remind people also there are a lot of um, facts at the website. Oh, yes, go ahead. Did someone have a question? Okay. I'll, I'll just keep going here for a sec. Uh, the www.ruraldesign.org site has uh, yeah, there is a hyphen between rural and design, has an FAQ area and also a request for proposals, and it might be a good place to also check for a lot of these questions. So we're gonna we're about to move into covering some more of them today. Uh, there are also call notes from the January call, the introductory call that you might want to look at. And that's at communitymatters.posterus.com slash citizens-institute-rural-design-crfpc. So I'm sure that's in some of your communications you've had before, but those might be some resources that will also be concrete for you to look at. Um, just before we, we let... Um, Ariana and, and Shelley go, are there any final tips about design that you would have bef before we move on to questions about the RFP? Shelley? Uh, no, I think we've covered most of it. Okay. Ariana? Uh, I'll just make my pitch for the, for the three principles again around designing uh, the community engagement uh, project. The first is design with the end in mind. The second is designing for diverse community participation. And the third is designing for your community. And, you know, definitely check out the resources that we've posted. I hope they're helpful. Okay. Thank you so much. We are going to move on to uh, the RFP and design. Uh, Kathleen from Ohio is uh, would like to know if it's best to have a specific project in mind when applying or could one pursue the grant knowing that the village needs to help formulate um, a plan to focus on a project? But okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Go okay, ahead. great. Um, yeah, this is Cynthia Nikitin. Um, that's, that's an interesting question. We, we definitely are not as excited about providing the support for a project where you have absolutely everything figured out and you've already kind of moving ahead and you you just it's just kind of need a little bit of a push over the end zone but you aren't you know it's it's like if it's too far along we don't really know what the what the, what the value added is i guess that's what it's about is what is the value added of this expertise of uh the support of um the resource team how do we make it super super valuable for you um, I think having an idea about a, what a project could be I mean but it can be 
Main Street revitalization. It can be improving access to the to the riverfront. It's not we want a specific boardwalk leading da 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 to a bridge. You know that level of detail we don't need. But if you you do need to know, yes, we want to work on our Main Street. We do want to work on preserving um, a heritage theater. Um, so there needs to be some specificity. Part of the reason why we give you two months to do the application and have these calls is that you can be formulating your plan of what you're going to do while you're doing the application. So it actually does kind of um, encourage you all to get more specific. But again, it doesn't have to be... We're not looking for a solution. We don't really want to fund a solution. But we do want to um, support um, a particular a project, a goal, something that the community has come together to identify as a major uh, design challenge and an issue that could have positive social, economic, community, cultural, health benefits, you know, everything. So I hope that, I hope that helps. But right. I think, yeah. Thank you, Cynthia. We had, a, we had another question from Len from Connecticut who is, is looking for guidance in regards to how far in the future and with what specificity applicants should identify follow-up steps and actions? Um, we are always interested in knowing what the outcomes can be. Um, we are looking for projects that can actually become implemented. It's getting you to, it's getting the communities to a point where they have the idea of a plan and the beginnings of a concept that they can actually use to help fundraise around, and there will be additional resources that we provide on the website and in calls to talk about how that happens. It doesn't have to be that specific, but there is the idea that, um, you know, we a two-and-a-half-day workshop and then we all feel good about ourselves and go home is really not what we're trying to achieve here. So, and that's part of it is working with communities that are so ready that are really at the tipping point, that are ready to move ahead, um, that have the support and the encouragement behind them, and we're helping you kind of move towards that goal, towards that implementation. You know, we often say you don't know what you're going to end up with. This is a bit of a fishing expedition. It's an iterative process. We're not asking you to identify the finished product, but there is this idea that we want to get a sense that after the workshop, after the follow-up calls, Etc. That there will be enough momentum generated that things will continue to move forward. Yeah. Could I just uh, ask a follow-up on that? Uh, this is Len. Sure, Len. Uh, um, in the uh, report uh, that uh, the um, project uh, submits uh, once the workshop is over, um, is there a section on what we will do now? Uh, what we're going to do to follow up what we learned? through the workshop? Uh, that could be part of the sort of evaluation, like the follow-on after the after the workshop is part of the report writing and the wrap-up. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that's something that we'll work on together, you know, from our perspective, from the perspective of the resource team, you know, and we even think we're, we're crafting the workshops now. We just had a, a meeting yesterday. Um, and it was very a lot of fun to kind of create an opportunity for the the the, um, the the resource people to actually give input back at the end of each day. You know, based on what we heard and based on what we talked about, 
these are some key things you might want to think about moving forward so that we're sort of doing that that recap and that next step agenda formulating while we're doing the workshop. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Len and Cynthia. Um, I'm going to go down to program benefits. Uh, there's a question here from James from Oklahoma. He says his community has gone through a vision, mission, strategic planning process. So he's asking, is this rural community design workshop set up to be another community planning repeat, as he says, or is it different in addition to or more beneficial and how? Yeah, I think if you've got that great planning framework already set up, um, then we will work with you to craft a workshop and a two-and-a-half-day event that will move you forward, you know, that will not just be the same thing that you've had before. We'll probably ask you for results from that. We'll probably want to to read those resources and talk to you about them and use that to craft the, the workshop and identify the right resource people for you. So it would be, again, it's, it's not, would not repeat, but that's up to us all collectively working together to, to shape that. Okay, thanks, Cynthia. Um, here's, here's another one. This one's coming in from Georgia. Um, John asks, how detailed does the kind of role and commitment to help by partner organizations need to be in the application? Uh, we know they will help, but discussion needs to take place as to uh, what we'll need during the project. Right. Yeah, we understand that you know you're you're going out, you're finding your partners, you're putting this application together. You might not have the detailed scope of work of each of your partners, specifically what each and every one of them is going to do. Um, it's mostly to identify that you've got the partners are there, they're on board, uh, you've identified who they are within an agency or an organization or an institution, um, and that there's a commitment to partner with you, and generally speaking what they would be responsible for. What, what would their role be versus you as the um, organizer versus, you know, other kinds of other uh, project team members and, and partners and supporters. You will learn that as you as you go along, and this will all become much more clear as we get closer to you know to, to planning the workshop. What it is that each one needs to do? But thank you, Cynthia. Could you? Um, a, a number of people are interested in the in the timeline. Could you kind of run us run us through the timeline for project development and completion? You know, once the grant is awarded in May, then what happens, and then what happens even after with help and and interaction? Um, sure. So we are hoping we have a we have to do a an, an NEA based um, selection process with panelists and review, et cetera. We are hoping to announce um, the four selected communities in the middle of May. We will be interviewing probably eight finalists um, to have a phone conversation with you. Um, we want to you know be able to to have a to talk with folks. Um, also as part of this process, we'll be announcing in May, and then we're going to spend the summer working with you to develop the workshops, to develop the workshop content, to identify the right resource people. We will do site visits, uh, one- to two-day site visits, where we come out and meet you and meet your team, take pictures, help pick the venue. Um, if we want to do a site visit field trip, figure out what that is. So that's going to be on site planning with you as well. And then we are um, then planning to do 
two workshops in September and two in October. We don't want to do workshops in the summer because people are on vacation and it's just it's not a good time. So we're going to spend the summer doing our planning with you. Um, and then there will be additional calls and informational sessions after that into uh, 2014. We spent a lot of we we put together a website really quickly, um, and that took quite a bit of time. So we're the, the schedule has slipped a little bit, but evidently this is not unusual. Um, so that's kind of of how it is. So. Hopefully over the summer when people have a little bit more flexibility in their schedules, we can be working with you on all of this. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, there have been a number of questions about resource team members, um, who they should be and what role they play. If you can run that by again. And then I'm going to, I'm going to open up the, for questions so people can get ready to do the pound six. If you, if you have a question, we will take some on. Um, right directly on the phone. But first, Cynthia, talk, talk a, just a little bit more about the resource team. Yeah, the resource team, you know, we, we don't want to call them specialists. We don't want to call them faculty. We don't want to call them experts. We want to call them resource people. Um, these are folks that you know of that we can recommend or we can recommend that are Really knowledgeable about what your about what your issue is. So, if you're looking at um, restoration of a historic theater and the economic development benefit and scenarios for how you get a historic theater up and running again and revenue generating, um, you know we we know the people that are really versed in that. Um, we need to find out what your issues are, which we'll find from your applications and through the interviews and the site visits. We will collectively determine who the best people in the field might be. We also have a task force of folks that are guiding us with the program who will have ideas. The NEA staff, Jason and Jamie, will have suggestions um, of, of people that could fill, fulfill that role. We will cover their honorarium. We will cover their airfare. We will cover their expenses. However, we have a budget. So if, they, if you want Richard Florida to come to your town, we might not be able to cover his full honorarium, so that might be something that you would look for funding elsewhere uh, to support. Um, you know, Lady Gaga probably not going to be able to afford her fee if, if you wanted to make your community an entertainment mecca. Um, so we need to work within some parameters. Um, we also have resource people who've been working with uh, the program for years and years and years such as Ed McMahon, who's also on the board of the Orton Foundation. You know, we, we have a quite a wide network of folks. Um, you, might have, you might have faculty at your university. You know, you may have other people that, that you want to put forward from your community who we'd be happy to, to consider. Um, they need to be dynamic. We want to have very interactive exercises, um, lot, not a lot of lecture talking heads, but resource people who engage you um, in in discussion, in debate, in problem solving. Um, you know, we're not looking for folks that just kind of stand up there and, and lecture for two hours. <clears throat> it's really going to be a very dynamic, hands-on program. So that's also part of our criteria in working with you to select who those who those right people um, are going to be. 
Thank you, Cynthia. And, and while we're on budget, I'm going to open it up uh, for in just a minute, but there is a question about um, if there are guidelines avail available for valuing goods and services submitted for the in-kind match of, of the 7,000. Oh. Huh. I don't know. Maybe my, my colleagues at Orton may have a um, – I'll try, but maybe they can jump in. Um well, if it's good, if it's services, it's sort of if someone is is giving you three hours of their time, you know, and they what what do they usually normally charge on an hourly basis? Or if they're a salaried employee and they spend four hours a week, what is the percentage that that represents from their salary, for example? Um, goods and services is sort of the value you also put on you put on things as well. Um, I guess it's what someone would normally charge if they were doing doing something for hire or, or selling something for retail. Um, and I don't know if there's mm, – I'm not sure. Um, I haven't really quite – I don't quite have enough experience with that. Um, Ariana has uh, an idea here. Um, yeah, so I, I agree uh, generally with what Cynthia said in terms of, of thinking about, you know, percentages of staff time or, or people's hourly rates. Within our own heart and soul community planning program, when we fund projects, we do have some estimated ranges that people can use, and we're happy to post those on the Google Doc if that's helpful for people to get a sense for, you know, what would be a, an appropriate rate for maybe a project team member who's just volunteering time versus an architect who would be lending services to the workshop. Um, so, uh, again, we'll be happy to get those up on the Google Doc uh, within the day. Thank you, Ariana. Um, I'd, I'd like to open it up if there are folks that did not write in a question uh, to the Google Doc and who might have some questions now for Cynthia and or even Shelley or Ariana. Um, just uh, press pound and six to get off mute, and we will take your question. We'll give you a second just because I know sometimes it takes a little time, and if if not, we will uh, we will move on. Okay, Becca, what are some questions we still have? Here we go. Um, uh, this is uh, another question. Will the workshop take place in the small town uh, uh, that, that what sent the application? Um, if I need to assemble a group of professionals to meet the requirements of the RFP, is this allowed under my company as the acting respondent of the RFP? You are encouraged to identify the 30 to 35 participants that you feel would be best served by and best contribute to the workshop, and we will also make recommendations, but you are all um, tasked with mm -hmm. figuring out who those top 30, to, the best 30 to 35 people are um, to come to participate. If you don't have a venue in your community that can that is appropriate for a multi-day meeting, you know, with uh, little catering services and places to do breakout rooms, you don't have to be in. You know, we can go to another town if that's a, you know if that's okay with the other town. You don't have to. You don't have to be within the boundaries and jurisdiction of your community if the, an appropriate facility doesn't exist there. Um, within an you know within an existing organization, we just we need a you know we just want you to be cognizant that we want it to be a broad representation of stakeholders and community members and residents and citizens. 
and people from the ages of eight to eighty coming, you know, to that to that venue and participating, being able to participate in that program. So it it has to be sort of an open selection process in terms of invitations um, of of um, participants. Thanks again, Cynthia. Um, it, because there were so many questions around eligibility, I wondered if you would uh, just review again who is eligible, you know, population, et cetera, and, and just even answer, are some communities more competitive than others? Um, communities with populations less than 50,000 are eligible. Multiple jurisdictions, multiple communities, communities across the region, if each of them has a population less than 50,000 are eligible. Um, I believe, and Shelley could, could speak to this, some communities had populations of, you know, a couple thousand, maybe even fewer, all the way up to Biloxi, Mississippi at the time had a population of 49,400. So it's the whole range there. Um, just a little bit about the match. You you are not able to use federal grant money to match other federal monies. If you have an Our Town grant, you cannot use that to match the third grant. If you have HUD money or money from Community Development Block Grants or EPA, we'd like to know what agency you have the funding from. But again, you cannot use those funds to match these funds, and you cannot use third funds to match your Our Town grant funds, okay? Federal funds can't be used to match federal funds. Um, are some communities more competitive than others? This is the first time we're running this, this, this program, um, so we, I don't have an answer to that. Um, I think that the, the applications themselves are what we look to, to, to kind of garner that. We work with a panel of about five people that are going to be doing the selecting evaluation and recommendations. So we are looking at the at the applications, but we're not we're not doing the ones who are selecting. We have an independent panel of folks that are going to do that. And the thing with the independent panel of folks, because we just had a call with NEA this morning, is that we are going to wait to review the applications before we actually select our panelists. So if we have Many applications from across the southern part of the United States, we're going to make sure that we have panelists from the southern United States. If we have many applications that are about cultural districts and arts districts, we're going to make sure that we have panelists that can speak to that. If there's a lot of art projects, we'll make sure that we have a lot of art-related experts um, on the panel. So... Um, Okay, um, so that's how we're going to we're going to so we're going to make sure that the panelists that we select to review the out your applications are representative of and and experts for want of a better word in your particular area. You're not going to be like seven people from New England looking at your proposal for you know something in in a, in Kentucky. So we're going to try to be very geographically, culturally, and diverse in terms of gender in terms of our panelists. So that's reflective there. Um, Rebecca is telling me that I could tell you that um, communities that are eligible are equally competitive. That is, a 2,000 population town isn't more or less competitive than one that has 20,000. So it's not quantity, it's quality. <laughs> and, and speaking, there's a little bit of confusion about this outlying um, 
towns um, around a metropolitan area. So somebody from Portland, Oregon, is writing in who says, you know, Portland is obviously an urban center, but 20 or you know, 15 or 20 minutes out is quite rural. Um, you know, are you excluding communities within the same county as a ur- major urban center, or does it have to be just outside that? that county, uh, where is that urban fringe line? Yeah, the, the, the mysterious urban fringe. I, I think we need to reconsider that terminology. Um, you know, I think that the answer is no, we're not excluding those communities, but my feeling is if you're in the rural area and you've got Portland, why aren't you using architects and designers in Portland to come out and work with you? Why aren't you tapping into that amazing resource from that city and all those people and students and, and faculty that, that could help you. you know. And if there's a reason why, tell us. Why is that? Why is it that those design services are not available to you as a rural community next to a metropolitan area? You know, that's, that's, that's kind of my, uh, I don't know if my team members have, have other an, another reaction to it. Um, it could be that you, your community doesn't have financial resources, you know, to, to bring in people, in which case we could help facilitate that and maybe we help bring in some really special people from Portland to work with you because that creates, you know, a local dynamic with the urban and rural kind of um, regional perspective. So that might be actually very appealing in your application. But we want to know why. You know, we want to know what it is that, that you know, I guess I, I'm going to stop there. Okay, thanks a lot. I'm gonna I'm gonna end with one last question here. Um, I had a question too, if, if I could. Go, go ahead. Who's this? This is Len again. I didn't want to jump in if other people hadn't talked had questions, but if they don't, okay, if, it's a, if it's a quick one, specific question to our town. Uh, I know that the town itself must uh, show that it supports the application. Uh, in our case, we have. Uh, a town manager, town planner, and a town council. Now, do all of those have to uh, be supportive, or can any one of them be? Or how does that work? The town manager and planner are not elected, uh, but the town council is. Okay. Well, ultimately, we would like them all to be supportive of this effort. But in terms of who writes your letters of support, as many as many as you can. Um, if if you can't if you can't get a letter from the town manager, but you've got council people, great. Um, we would like to know that pretty much everyone on your town is on board, or if there's a reason why they're not, how that becomes part of the design, the challenge that you want to overcome um, through this. So I would say the more the merrier, um, and we would. You know that 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 helps. Um, we we have known in the past, and and there's been an evaluation of the program that showed that those communities that had um, support at the local municipal level, you know, whomever that was, uh, is where you know those those were the projects, those were the communities that actually made the most progress towards implementation and were more successful than those that didn't have the support at the municipal level. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank Mary, you, question? And, and Cynthia. Um, is there anybody else on the line who has a question? Yes, I have a question. Can you hear me? 
Yes, I can. Go ahead. Oh, good. My name is John Cottingham. I live in Garden Valley, Idaho. That's not Iowa. That's Idaho. <laughs> Somewhere way out west where there are Indians and cowboys are. Welcome to the call. Thank you. I've got my horse outside. <laughs> a question. I uh, live in a little town called Garden Valley, north of Boise, Idaho, about 55 miles up in the mountains. And and we have the possibility of a new molybdenum mine going into our area. It'll be about 10 miles from our community. The community is about 4,000 people full-time, 6,000 in the summer. If it goes in, in six or seven or eight years, whatever, uh, it will bring 5,000 people to our community area to open that mine and then 1,000 people to operate it for perhaps 50 years. It's a $16 billion project. We're in Boise County. Boise County doesn't have 5,000 people in it entirely. Um, and and, and we're gonna, it's going to have an em, enormous impact on our economy and jobs and people and things like that. One of the things that would be really helpful is if we had a panel of experts that could tell us how to prepare for it. And I don't mean by standing in front of the Planning and Zoning Commission and, and objecting to it. I, the project will come if it comes. Uh, what I'm talking about is if we assume that it does open, we're going to need some help saying to all of our citizens, these are the likely impacts on your economy, and this is what you need to do to prepare for it. Is that the kind of workshop that you're talking about? I think, Go ahead, Cynthia. Yeah, I think having that the, the panel of, of experts or resources that can help you prepare for this, I think yes, that is part of this. Um what what Jamie and Jason from the NEA are always coaxing us to think about is what is the design challenge um that that, that, that presents. Um we know there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges and a lot of opportunities with what you've just with what you've just described. But design challenges might be, you know, that you, you want us to help you come up with design guidelines um, or that there are uh, zoning changes that we need to make to ensure that what is built for these new residents and workers is appropriate and fits in with the context. Um, we can help you sort of with the, with, the, with the shaping the design piece of it and how that's, that's going to work. But, about. yeah. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking yeah. about infrastructure and perhaps zoning issues uh, and, 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 and those kinds of things that you need to do. And we've got, fortunately, we've got lots of time. Well, I don't know about lots of time, but we've got yeah. enough time uh, to do this right. Uh, what we don't want to have happen is to have 5,000 people land on us and not be prepared and not to have done any of this thinking because that will be a terrible Beforehand. Thing. And then to have somebody else deciding what, where they live, what they live, and, and how if your roads are widened and, exactly. you know, and how much more traffic you're going to get. And, and having that taken out of your hands, I understand exactly. that. Yeah. So, so that's why I'm asking. I mean, a yeah. two-and-a-half-day seminar won't answer all of the questions, but, but it might route us to the right kinds of approaches to make this a positive experience instead of a disaster. Yeah. And so I hope so. Saying that, yeah, right. Uh, uh, and so you're saying that that would be an appropriate application? That's what I'm really asking. Yeah, I, I believe so. If you, but again, figure out if you're how you how you make that a design 
challenge or opportunity. And that's the same thing for cell tower locations, wastewater treatment centers, yep. Walmart coming to town. Is can we can we unbundle all of that to kind of think about the community centered design approach or solution to that? You're right on. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Good, good luck. Good luck, John. We have one last question. Um, I'm going to ask right now. Uh, this is uh, from Jason in Michigan. He said, I've been organizing research and developing many programs for models over five years now. I'm ready to build the RFP. How do I begin the process now that I'm learning about it? Um, I would say get your, you have to get your team together. You know, put your posse together. Um, have a conversation. You need other people to be on board with this with you. Um, Jason, not only to help you write it, but to help you kind of craft it. There's a lot of inf a lot of questions we ask about your partners and your approach. Um, we also think that again, building support at the local municipal level, going to a, a town board meeting or a council meeting, and, and saying that you are you're going biting the bullet, taking the bold step, and applying for this. Um, letting folks in your community know that you're doing it and trying to gather support and help. Um, at all levels um, in terms of helping you put it, putting it together. Um, you know, it's whoever you're, you've been partnering with before to do the research that you've been doing, you know, they might be a um, logical a first group of people to kind of get together, you know, over a cup of coffee and, and lay this out on the table and kind of figure out who's going to do what. Okay. Uh, Ariana, do you have a little bit to add there? Sure. So, Jason, I don't know whether, you know, from the research you're doing, you have um, multiple ideas or projects or programs in mind, but I think going back to some of Shelley's um, guidance in terms of, if, you know, considering which of those ideas might be the most ready for this particular workshop, so thinking about the scale of the project, um, the relevance to the community, um, if it's the right timing. Um, again, as Cynthia said, reaching out to those potential partners or folks who've been already working with you to start to shape, uh, you know, a really clear project concept, getting clear goals, um, defining your project scope. Some of the tips we were talking about before, I think, I hope will be really helpful in addition to even you know, the more specific guidance in the RFP in terms of what needs to be in the application. Thank you so much. I, um, this has been a great call. Remember, there's. Um, I'm going to close it out now. There is another call on Thursday, February 28th. That'll be the final call for applicants with any remaining questions about the program or application process. And we're just going to keep the lines open for the whole call. Uh, we also encourage you to submit questions ahead of time via email or the call registration form. You do need to register for that call. Um, we'll answer questions from one of those venues um, in, in addition, as I said, to taking the calls online. Um, please uh, so sign up for that next call. If your question was not answered today and, the, and you had one, please check the Google Doc again because um, we're going to make sure that all the questions that were asked are answered at, at least in text form there on the Google Doc. Uh, you can also visit rural-design.org, that website, for more insight into this whole process. I want to thank everybody who participated, um, Cynthia, Shelley, Ariana, for all of your fantastic information, for all of you that uh, came in on the call. I want to um, encourage you to um, uh, just get out there and, and make this happen. It sounds, it sounds very exciting, um, and uh, I'm sure that uh, 
you know, there are some fabulous projects. The podcast of this call and call notes will be emailed around um, the list and also posted online. So thank you all very much. I uh, hope to hear from some of you on February 28th. Um, anything I've missed, Rebecca? No. Anybody else? Thank you so much, and uh, goodbye. Okay. Bye. Thank Bye. you.